I want us to look in the Word of God today. We've been going through the parables, and uh, they've been amazing hearing the different speakers, and I'll talk about the parables. Today, I'm going to read from Matthew, the 13th chapter, the 44th verse, and I'll be reading out the NIV. Maybe a little different up there, but give you a, another view of it. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid again, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of the great, well, great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The parable of the net. Uh, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down in the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in the baskets and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angel will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? Jesus asked. And they replied, he said to them, uh, Therefore, very, uh, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the, uh, in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out... Uh, the uh, showroom, the new treasure, as well as the old. And so, believe it or not, these, these, these parables are tied together. It would be more like a summation if you look at the previous parables that he has given. Uh, he's kind of wrapping it back up. Uh, and, you know, the wheat and the tares, he's just using the analogy of fish. You would bring in the fish and you don't Normally you don't carry home all the bad fish. You're like, oh, well, I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to eat that. It's too small. You know, and you throw that back in and you just keep the good fish similar to there's wheat and tares grow together and you're going to only harvest the, uh, uh, you're not going to take the tares out because you'll uproot the wheat, but there comes a separation time. And the, uh, the owner of the house talks about the, uh, the, old, the old treasure and the new treasure. Both are very close to your heart, you would show uh, people that visit, you would show them both treasures and it would be something that you would cherish. And uh, so we're going to now dig into what these parables mean. Back when I went to college, um, there was a song that was out and uh, that was very, very popular. It was one you'd hear on the radio, everybody's singing, uh, the choral group at the, at the college sang it during Spiritual Emphasis Week. Uh, I'm going to tell you about that. The message title I've chosen today are You Are Priceless. You ever seen one of those commercials that talks about this and that and the other and it goes priceless? Well, I want you to know today that you are priceless. You are priceless. And don't forget that. I hope you see it today in the message. The song, uh, the parable of the treasure and the pearls, what I'm going to be focusing on primarily today Ralph Carmichael's song is He's Everything to Me. This was a big song, uh, like I said, when I was in college. Me and my wife, we left Florida. Uh, we were married. We went off to college. And I remember packing up everything we had. We sold everything and got down to a little five-by-seven trailer. And we put everything in it, and we took off to college. We were leaving behind our families, leaving behind Florida, all our friends, going off to college to a strange town, and we were doing it for all the sake of the ministry, uh, going to prepare for ministry. And it seemed like everything that we had knew uh, was being given up. 
And at that time, we were thinking about, you know, we just wanted to please God, to find God's will. If we could just find what God wanted us to do, what his will was, that was the big question. This song kind of related to a lot of people that was at college because they were asking the same thing. We were all trying to follow God's will. The song goes, he's everything to me. In the stars, his handiwork I see. On the wind, he speaks with majesty. Though he ruleth over land and sea, what is that to me? You can believe there is a God and that he's supposed to be the guy that makes the sun come up and the stars come out and the night and the moon and all of this stuff. But you know, just because, yeah, do you believe there is a God? Yeah, I kind of believe there is a God, but what does that mean to me? And that's the question that people are asking back in the late 60s and 70s. What, what does that mean to me? Then he said, till by faith I met him face to face, and I felt the wonder of his grace. Then I knew that he was more than just a God who didn't care, that lived away out there. And now he walks beside me day by day, ever watching o'er me, least I stray, helping me to find the narrow way. He's everything to me. The, the thought of this song, and you're thinking about how can I put God first in my life? A lot of people come and say, well, how can I know the will of God? How can I put God first? How can I make a full surrender? How can I know and do the will of God? Why is it so difficult to be a true Christian? A lot of times we ask those questions, but we're asking the wrong question. That information, if we knew that information, it would not help us. What we need to know was the whole theme of that song. The words of the song gives us God's answer. You can't say he's everything to me until you can say, I believe he's ever, I'm everything to God. I'm everything to God. Do you know today that you mean everything to God? That you mean everything to God. God, uh, he put everything on the line for you. I want to dive into this parable it's a wonderful truth of God's word as we begin to look at these parables of that hidden treasure and that pearl of a great price. You think of someone that would go out and they would find, you know, be working in the field. Maybe it was a laborer and he worked in the field and he was hoeing and getting ready for a garden. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know that there's just stones everywhere and you're hitting and you go, oh, I've hit another stone. And he reaches down and he realizes, no, it's not a stone, it's something else. So he begins to dig everything out of the way and he notices it's some kind of uh, container and he opens that container and he finds a treasure. Well, he didn't really own the land and so since he didn't own the land, then the treasure actually is not his. Uh, but there was a, a, a Jewish law that said that, you know, kind of finders, keepers, losers, weepers type thing. But the thing, it had to be on your land. If it was on your land, if, you, if the land belonged to you. So it, the, the parable said the guy, once he found the treasure, he covered it back up. And he went and he, he sold everything that he could sell. And his every thought, his every, everything that he had his mind on was to buy that treasure. If he could buy, that, if he could buy the land, he knew the treasure was him. So he had, to buy the tre- he had to buy the land. And then he knew he could go back and uncover and have the treasure. And it was, a, it was a big thing. It was something that he was looking forward to. And so we, we find this, this beautiful story uh, of what a person would go through. Now, here's where I believe that the uh, people that do commentaries miss the, the story. Most commentaries, you'll get up and they'll talk about, 
you know, when you find Christ, you found something that you need to just, you'd be willing to sacrifice everything for him. But that's not, to me, what the parable is about. It's not about our sacrifice for him. That's, what not, that's not the big story, the big picture here. Uh, you know, he was now, they had, he had been out there talking to all the masses of people. He had called his followers, his two true followers inside. And he said, I want to tell you a few more parables. And this is to the inner group, the inner circle. And you know, the true followers, those that are really uh, followers of Christ, those that are really seeking after God's will, we find that's the ones that he lets him, lets him know the secrets. And he said, come on in, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the parables, and I'm going to tell you the secret of the kingdom, the secret of the kingdom. So they were getting the inside scoop, the inside conversation. And, um, and so the parables deal with the will, the will. The, the parables that he's telling here are about the will of man. He was talking to that inner group, the disciples. And um, are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to, um, to, to be one of my disciples? The issue is knowing and doing the will of God. The disciples had to want, they had to want that more than anything else. They had to want it more than anything else. Jesus gave them the motivation in these parables. These parables are like an autobiography or a biography of the father. All the parables, the, the story of the prodigal son, is really more of a story of the prodigal father. The father who was willing to be there for his son. He couldn't go in the far land and participate in his son's righteous living. But he could stand there and he could have the light on and he could be waiting. And he could picture in his mind, one day my son's going to be on that path. And when I see my son, I'm going to run after him. And I'm gonna, we're going to kill the fatted half. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate because my son that was lost came home. See, that's one of the parables. The woman that lost the coin and she searched the house over until she found it and she rejoiced. The man that lost had 99 sheep, but one was lost. But they went out and they done a search party and they found that lost sheep and they all rejoice. It's about the fact that you rejoice when you find lost things, when you find lost things. And so when you begin to see the picture come together, uh, Sunday school class as a kid, pretty much if you want to know who the parable is about almost every single parable is about jesus it's about the god the father or jesus i heard this story about this sunday school class and this little kid uh the teacher said what's brown and gray and has got a bushy tail and climbs trees and eats nuts and the little kid goes man it sure sounds like a squirrel but i won't say jesus Usually you can't go wrong by just saying Jesus because every book in the Bible is about Jesus. The parables are about Jesus. The, the parables are either about the part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The parables are about Jesus. He, we, we need to know more about him. So he's telling us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm telling you stories about what we're like, what God is like. I've come down to reveal the Father to you. And so we, we begin to get this picture. So let's look and dig a little deeper in this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And from joy, I want you to keep listening to that word joy. The prodigal father had joy. The woman who lost the coin, in fact, had joy. The, 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 the people that lost the sheep, uh, lost sheep and found it, they had joy. And he said, this man, 
he hid it in a field which a man found and hid it again. And from joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now this don't sound like people that are like, oh my God, what am I going to have to give up to serve God? It's going to be so hard, so difficult. It's not talking about the difficulty of serving God. That's not what the parable is about. Most commentaries, that's where they'll go. We are drawn into the drama of the man's search for the valued pearl. This guy was a merchant. He would go out. He knew pearls. He searched after pearls. He knew the value of a pearl. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking a fine pearl. Uh, pearls. And upon finding one pearl of a great value, he went out and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Here again, a guy found something worth so much that he'd be willing to give up everything else for that. They'd be willing to, uh, and it occupied his mind, his thought. Have you ever been, you know, going down the road and you, you know, you hear an advertisement about they got these new cars or these new trucks and they got low interest and just come in and no matter if you got to pull it in or drag it in or push it in, you get it in here. We're going to give you a lot of trade value for it. And you start listening, well, you know, my car ain't as good as it used to be. You ever get your car on that lot, something else starts happening. You get in their vehicle and you're like, man, this smells good. This car smells like a brand new car. My car don't smell like that. And then you start thinking, man, this car drives good. It rides good. And you know, during that period of time of, usually they don't want you to get off the parking lot because you might change your mind. But if you ever do leave, you go, well, let me think about it. And you, you go and... All your thought is about, man, well, I look good in that truck. I look good in that car. And you keep thinking, and all you can think about is that, getting that. Or maybe you, you applied and you're, you're seeking out to get a house, and you've looked at the house, you went and looked at some houses, you found the one you want, and you, you, can, you can just start visualizing that house. You can visualize your furniture. You know, okay, I have to get rid of that furniture, but I'm going to put these pictures up. And your every thought is that house. You're just so excited about the house. You can't wait to get in the house. That's the way this, this, this pearl merchant was. He could envision that pearl. Even back in that time, they tell about Cleopatra had a pearl that was worth $400,000. $400,000. So you think about every conversation, every focus is hoping for new information or where it could find, where it could be, the dream about it, every heartbeat, you know, and you just wanted it. You just wanted it. And that's what he's talking about. Uh, I had an uncle one time that uh, my mom's uh, sister, her husband, he used to say, I can talk to somebody and in about 10 or 15 minutes, I can tell you what their passion is. Because if he gets around you and all you, you start talking about sports right away, then sports is your passion. Or if you talk about hunting or fishing, that's your passion. And you know, me and we'd talk about ministry sometimes because he was doing some ministry and I was doing some ministry. And it wasn't long that no matter what, my, me or him, one, we'd get on the conversation of, of something about ministry. And that's the way it is. Your passion usually comes up very quickly. You start thinking about your passion. Your passion comes up very, very quickly. You, you think about what it would be, what it would be like. And so it, it occupies all your thought, all your imagination. That's all you can think about. And so this man, when he was thinking about the pearl or the treasure, he, you know, he, he was thinking about, I could own that. It could be mine. You visualize that so you could have it. What means that much to us? What means that much to you and I 
that it occupies our every thought, our every imagination. You're dreaming about it. You can't wait to get it. What means that much in our lives? What would, it, what would we value so highly as a treasure or a pearl that we'd be willing to give everything for? Does God and his kingdom mean that much to us? Then we look at the parables again and then suddenly we realize that's not the real meaning. The parables of the treasure and the pearl tell us about the purpose of Jesus' passion. See, the pearl is about, the, the, the parable is about Jesus. The parable is this about God. And it's telling us about him. It's telling us where his passion lies, not where our passion lies. There's a deepening of the meaning. Suddenly it, draw, it dawns upon the disciples. It dawns upon us. The parable of the treasure and the pearl tell us the purpose of Jesus' passion. And the passionate purpose that he unleashes uh, into our life. Jesus is saying, get this now. Jesus is saying, you are the treasure. Jesus is saying, you are the pearl. You are the one I'm talking about in this parable. See, Adam and Eve was put upon this earth. And Adam and Eve sinned. And they kind of sold their birthright. Which you see that story in the Old Testament. You know, what would you give your birthright up for? But Adam and Eve sold their birthright, the authority. And then we find that devil, he become the, uh, you know, the kind of their father. And he become the, the ruler of the, the, the physical earth, you might say. And yet we find in the story, we'll find out later that who was the, uh, the story about when uh, they talked about the sower and the seed? The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. The sower was Jesus. These parables are about Jesus. It's about God. It's about what he wants us to know about God. And so the sower was the son of man. And here, the, the guy digging in the field was the son of man. Digging in the field for a treasure. The, the, the one, the merchant that's going and looking for the pearl is the son of man. The parable don't change. These stories are about the Son of Man. He is leading us to the character. He's the leading, has the leading role in all the char- as the character in all the parables. He has been teaching. But in each characterization, he is revealing an astonishing nature of himself and of God, the Father. He is the plowman. He is the merchant. God is saying, you mean everything to me. No cost is too high. We see this in the cross. When we look at the cross, the, co- the cross, the cost is in the cross. The cost is in the cross. How much do you mean to God? You mean so much to God that He died on the cross. That's how much you mean to God. You mean so much to God that He would come from heaven. He would lay aside uh, the, the, you know, the... His deity, he come in the fashion of a man. He never ceased to be God, but he came and he came as a little baby. He grew up and he would come and he would take the world as the field. And he knew that there was a treasure in that field. And guess who that treasure was? That treasure was you and I. The treasure was us. And so he's, he's willing to go and, and leave heaven and all that heaven represents and come to this earth and to dig around and die for that treasure, and that treasure is us. That's what the story's about. It's about how much it costs God to dig out the treasure, which is us. 
And I just pray that we understand that a lot of the commentaries want to say that the, that the, uh, the cost is the discipleship. No, it's not. That's not what it's about. I want you to see something here. As we look at this story and we look, we find that the treasure reminds us of many times God has told Israel that she was a special treasure. A special treasure. To me, above all people, for all the earth is mine in Exodus 19 and 5. Israel, God's people in the Old Testament primarily, those people were always referred, you're the apple of his eye. You're, you're the, uh, you know, you're the treasure. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. That's the way he referred to them. And he'd be willing to die. And God not only died for Israel, he died for us. And I believe that when he talks about the treasure, I believe primarily he's talking about Israel. When he talks about the pearl, I think he's primarily talking about the Gentiles. And here's the reason why. The Gentiles, they're the ones that eat pork. They're the ones that eat crustaceans. But the Jews would not do that. The Jews would not. They, they had a, a different dietary plan. And so the pearl was, what, where do we get a pearl? Out of an oyster. And they were out of the sea. And it was something that the Jews would not eat. It would not. But he was saying, I have, I have the treasure of the Jews. And I have the treasure of the Gentiles. That pearl of a great price. And I believe he's referring to that. The pearl metaphor is drenched with meaning. When he, gets, when he tells, and he's just telling all these, these parables together. It complements the treasure in the field in that it reveals how much God treasures his people. And what must happen to us to realize his love. See, pearls, for a pearl to take place, there has to be an invasion into a, uh, uh, an invasion and an injury. There has to be an invasion and an injury. In the oyster. And they are products of a living organism. A grain of sand gets within the oyster and injures it. The oyster then covers over the injury with this calcite and nacre layer upon layer until the pearl is fashioned. And you know what? We have our damaged goods. We've been hurt by the father of lies of Satan. And some of you have been through great hurts. You've been through losses. You've been through divorces. You've been through failures. And a lot of those failures you brought on yourself. A lot of those you were deceived by Satan. Some of you have been hurt by churches. You've been hurt by individuals. And there's an injury there. And that injury there is a wound to you. And it's, it's very hurtful. But I'm going to tell you something. God wants over a period of time. If you let the grace of God and the love of God flow into your life. God will make a pearl out of your injury. God will make something great. Your, your greatest injury. Your greatest failure. Your greatest destruction that you've ever had pile upon your life. If you will let God have it for just a little bit. God will turn it into something beautiful. God will turn it into something valuable. God will turn it into something precious. It will become your testimony of God's love and grace in your life. And so I believe he, he even had that thought. God, it didn't matter what he had come to and in what shape they were in. God loved us while we were yet sinners. God loved us, loved us while we were yet far from him. God loved us while we were uh, sinful. He knew what his treasure was and he knew what he could accomplish with that treasure. He knew what it was, he was going to make. He was going to make a beautiful pearl out of all of us. 
But the other thing about this pearl, I think it's filled with a lot more meaning. The wounding, the wounding is the source of the wonder. There would not be a, a pearl if there wasn't the wounding in the oyster. I'm telling you, some of your greatest tragedies in life are the very things that God is going to use in your life. There's only one place we find uh, the mention about a pearl. And Job said in the Old Testament, Job said the price of wisdom is above pearls. In Job 28 and 18. And I, I really think that that's something powerful there. I, I, don't, I don't only believe that the wonder is, or, or the wounding is the source of the wonder. But I believe that the, the wounding is the price and the source of the wisdom. Because see, there's certain areas of wisdom that I don't want because of the way you've got to get it. Someone that's lost a child, they have a certain amount of wisdom about that loss that I don't want. But some of you've got it. You know what it is to lose a child. You don't ever get over it. You finally, hopefully, be able to manage and get through it. But there's wisdom. And if you find someone else that has a loss of a child, it's like when those two people get together, they connect, and they, have a, a, they, they can talk to each other. Everybody else is irrelevant. You, you, you don't, you, I don't get what you're talking about. I don't get people make... These, like, one day you'll get over it. No, you're never going to get over it. But people that don't have the wisdom about it, they'll go, well, one day you'll get over it. No, you won't. You're going to get through it. God's going to give you grace. He's going to help you. He's going to, he's going to put his grace and his love around it. He's going to help you get through it. But there's a wisdom about that. Someone that's been through a divorce, you are better uh, qualified to talk to somebody else that's going through a divorce. Someone that's lost a spouse, you have a certain understanding, a certain wisdom. There's a wound there, but there's a wisdom that comes from that wound with the grace of God in over a period of time. And so he's telling us here that the, the wounding is the source of the wonder. The wounding is the place, Job said, that wisdom. Job knew a little bit about loss. Job knew what it was like to have everything and then in a few days not have anything. And he realized that he gained wisdom. Sometimes you don't realize that God is all you need until God is all you got. You, there's a certain wisdom comes with certain things. And the, the wounding is often the source of your wisdom. But it was not one of the significant words or the symbols of Israel. Why then did Jesus speak the great price of this pearl? The metaphors were carefully selected. I believe that he had this metamorphosis in mind when he started telling about the pearl. Because it was, not, uh, it was not hidden from Jesus Christ what was fixing to happen to him. The kingdom of God would not be fulfilled without a terrible wounding at Calvary. Jesus was going to go to Calvary and he was going to pay the cost to heal our wounded injuries of being under Satan's power and control. He was going to be wounded. And the way we know this, we know it from Isaiah 53 and 5 said that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions. 
He would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquity. From Golgotha's wounds, the world would be one. I told you last week, some of the, the, the darkest day in your life, over a period of time, when you look back, you will know that God done something powerful during that time. In due time, things happen. Seed come up in due time. In due time, things happen. We get better understanding. They used to sing the old hymn, I'll understand it better by and by. That's true. There's a lot of things we don't understand right now. But later on, we start understanding it a little bit better. From Golgotha wounds, though, the world would be one. Only the power of love can make us realize how much we mean to God. Our self-depreciation. Here's the thing. You know who is a hard person to love? A hard person to love is someone with a low self-esteem. I'm telling you the truth. You go, well, I'm going to rescue that woman. I'm going to be like the guy in Pretty Woman. I'm going to rescue her. But I'm going to tell you what happens. You ever seen somebody, it seems like overnight something changes in their life. Just like, I don't know what. It's like that person's got favor. Everything's going good. Everything, you know, they, maybe they got married and then they, they got children and everything's going wrong. And then all at once, it seems like that person sabotages that. You go, what happened? I'll tell you what, so what happened? When people don't feel like they're worthy of good things happening to them, they'll sabotage, it, sabotage that relationship. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve him. I'm, I'm just going to, you know, he deserves somebody better than me. Or you know, he may be saying she deserves somebody better than me. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I'm no good. It's hard to love somebody like that because the whole time they're pushing you away, pushing you away, pushing you away. God knows the tricks of the devil. He knows that the devil wants you to feel this self-depreciation. These disabilities, the blows from life that give us negative self-images and lack of self-esteem. Fathers, if you love your daughters, the best thing you can do for them is give them love and respect and self-esteem. Build their self-esteem. Find ways of building their self-esteem because if you don't, some guy out here with a different motive is going to say all the right words. I'm going to steal your daughter's heart away from you. You need to build their self-esteem. The enemy is great at destroying self-esteems. Where you waller in the mire, nobody can love me. But I want you to know that God knows our past. He knows what we've been through and he still loves us. We will never know. We will never be able to love God until we understand how much he loves us. The love of God is reciprocal. You know, if you smile, usually people will smile back. If you love, somebody will love you back. And you know, if you're mean and you say nasty words, usually people say nasty words back. People respond in like manner. God knows that, so what? God first loved us. How can we accept the love that God offers? We are not worth, here's the thing, we're not worth the incarnation. 
We have done nothing to deserve a God like that. The Lord knows the injury and the wounds of our earthly experiences. And he uses those same wounds to turn us into pearls. The metaphor is twofold, what Christ means to us and what we mean to him. The point is this, you and I are, the central, are central in the strategy of the kingdom of God. The, the rule of God must begin with us, then reside between us and God, eventually covers every area of our life. God has elected us to be channels in the plan and the purpose of the world. The kingdom must enter into us before we can enter into the kingdom. See, we may be searching a kingdom. They were saying, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When are you going to set up your kingdom? When are you going to rule? Can I set at the right hand of your, uh, of your kingdom? They were all about the kingdom, but first they had to accept the king. A lot of times we want the kingdom without the king. You're not going to get the kingdom without the king. And God is the king. Jesus is king. We accept the kingdom of God. That's exactly what Jesus wanted the disciples to realize. Once they knew they were treasured by God, they would give everything to possess the treasure of the kingdom. When they realized they were pearls without peer to God, they would sell all that they had to obtain the pearl of great price, knowing and serving Him. The passion of our Lord liberates us to fulfill the purpose for which we were born. So often the gospel is preached and taught of what we must give up before we can realize the grace of God. That's totally backwards. That's totally backwards. I, I used to grow up in a church where they tried to scare the hell out of you. Every week, you know, you're going to go to hell, you're going to backslide, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. I'm telling you what, fear may make you make a, a, a hasty decision, but it will not keep you in God's grace. It won't. Because when the fear, when there's something out there that's more fearful than that comes upon you. It's not the fear, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, not fear, damnation. What God has done for us is the only adequate motivation for us and what we are to do in response. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. See, he was telling them, seek the kingdom of God. If you'll seek the kingdom of God, all these other things that you worry about, all these other things that you fret about, all these other things will be added. But you've got to first seek the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God must be first in your life. It's amazing how we want to do everything but seek the kingdom first. Only after we know that he has sought us. And, and you know, we, we won't seek him until we first know that he sought us. But all the stories are telling us that he seeks us. He seeks us. It's, it, he has great joy when we turn around, when we repent, when we come home like the prodigal son, when, we, when he finds the lost. I, I grew up at a church. I thought, well, I found God. No, I didn't find God. God's never been lost. I was lost, but he found me. I'm, I'm in the story where the shepherd goes and he looks for that lost sheep and he finds me. I wasn't looking for him. I was out roaming around doing what I wanted to do. And he found me because he's the good shepherd. We, we haven't found Jesus. Jesus found us. We wasn't even looking for Jesus. When he came to rescue us from our injury and our wound, we were lost without God, without the knowledge of God, without the wisdom of God. We were doing our own will. We were enemies of God. And he come looking for us. Because he knew what he was going to do in us. 
He tells us once we realize he sought us first, then we will be more entitled, more likely to seek him. Paul experienced that he could say for me to live as Christ, Philippians 1 and 21. Because Christ had lived for him. Lived for him. The apostle's passionate purpose flowed from that more than I. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Philippians 3, 8, 10. What, what Paul is saying, you, you may think that I was uh, raised and I was one of Gamaliel's great students uh, and I had this and I had that. But I'm going to tell you, all that that you thought I had that I enjoyed, it wasn't an enjoyment. He said, well, I want to tell you something. All my trophies and all my accomplishments and all the things that I accomplished in life, I consider it as dung. That's what the King James says, dung. I think everybody knows what dung is. All that stuff is dung. One day, if you don't give your heart to Jesus Christ, you're going to get to the end of your life. And you're going to realize that you gave your entire life up for dung. For something worthless. I've never, I've been to a lot of bedsides of people that's dying and I've never had somebody go, hey, go get me a picture of my car and bring it to me. Let me look at it. Oh man, I love that car. Or bring me a picture of my house. They won't their wife and their children by them by their side they want godly people around them they want god finally you only realize sometime at the wrong time what life is all about apostle paul said i i haven't given up anything i've gained i've gained See, love is responding to love. We talk about the cost of discipleship must always be considered in the light of the cost of our Lord to make us disciples. Whatever you would consider the cost of being disciples, it will never even measure up to the cost that he paid to make you a disciple. And he will make you a disciple. He said, follow me and I will make you. I will make you. I will make you. Ephesians said... Uh, Paul realized, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Do you get that? Paul says in Ephesians that we are God's inheritance. How many thinks God's going to collect his inheritance? He will. And I want you to know something. No matter how injured we are as that pearl, God says when he comes back, that he's going to be turn us into something that is blameless, that is holy, that is righteous. That when he comes back, we're going to be like him. We are his inheritance. He will finish what he started in us. We are his treasure. He gave up everything for you and I. The saints and the members of the church of Ephesus needed the encouragement and the affirming again that they were Christ's inheritance. If they could accept who they were as chosen people, they would be able to choose to do the Lord's will. Therefore, he said, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God.
even comparing, you know, what kind of love relationship were you if, if you, you know, if you wrote a letter to your, your bride, your, your wife, and go, honey, you know how much I've sacrificed for you. I have sacrificed for you all these years. My sacrifice of you, and you just went on and on and on about all that you've sacrificed for her. You know, somebody needs to give that card to uh, Hallmark, right? All I've done for you. Folks, that, that, you wouldn't get no uh, love, uh, you know, tokens for that. It, it's not about that. And, and you, you think that God wants us to know that he, love, he loves us while we were yet sinners. But a lot of times we want to say, God, I did this for you, and I did that for you, and I did that. Anything that we ever do for God just in response of what he's already done for us. You know, a lot of people say, it's so hard to serve God. Paul said the way of the transgressor is hard. If, if coming to church, living for God is hard for you, you have never understood the love of God. I can just say that. If being a disciple is a hard thing. Here's what I've noticed about people in churches. Those that never give, those that never serve, those that never get involved it's easy for them to walk away because they have nothing invested. They have nothing invested. There's something about when a man and a woman, you, you meet this woman and you go, out of all the women in the world, I want to get out on one day and I want you to ask you to be my bride. I want to spend forever with you. And then the minister warns you that, hey, you know, you're, you're kind of infectionated right now. You feel like everything's going to be really rosy all the time. But I want to tell you, are you taking her for better or for worse in sickness and in health? Is that the way you're taking her? Because there's going to be some good days, but there's going to be some bad days. Do you take her through it all? And you're, what you're wanting to hear from your partner is, I will. I give up my will for her. And she gives up her will for me. And here's what Paul even relates to this in a, a, being a spouse to the church. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Folks, God, you commit yourself to God and God's going to present us to the Heavenly Father blameless. The purpose of Jesus' passion was creation of a new people called the church. Precious treasure that would reach the world. Peter knew that. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that ye may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. A new breed of people that's in love with God because he's in love with them. Is there anything that can match the value of being God's cherished person? Is there anything that can match being in God? Is there anything worth more than God to you today? Augustine wrote this question one time. He answered it. What I feared to be parted from was not now a joy to surrender. For thou didst cast them forth from me, thou true and high sweetness. Thou didst cast them forth. And in their place did enter in thyself, sweeter than all the pleasures. 
Augustine was saying what he feared to give up, he realized would be given up with great pleasure once he experienced the sweetness and the blessings of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. When he reigns supreme in your heart, we can pray. Do you know we can't even pray until we surrendered our will to the kingdom of God? The disciples come to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Because you seem to get prayers answered. How do you pray? And Jesus started off the prayer like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If you want to have a prayer life where God answers, you've got to start off with that line. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Because here's what's happened. If we do not seek God's kingdom and, and, and accept God's kingdom in our life and let it live in us and accept the king to rule over our lives. If we don't do that, all our prayers are like this. God, I want you to give me that, that, that. We make God an errand boy. God, will you get me this? Will you get me that? Get me that. God, will you get me out of this? God, did this, that, that. And it's all about you wanting God, wanting God to be your errand boy and get you out of stuff. That you shouldn't have been in to start with. You're not praying the will of God. But I'm going to tell you what happens when you seek first the kingdom of God. And his, his rule in your life. The kingdom of God in your life. Here's what happens. You even get to some tough. <clears throat> because in this world you will have tribulation. You get to some rough spots in this world. You get into some, your garden of Gethsemane. You get in there and you're up against the wall with some stuff. And you say, God, you know, I'd really like for you to move this out of my way. God, if you will, just move this out of my way. And finally, you pray a little more earnest. And you realize you're not praying in the will of God. And finally, you pray the more earnest. And you finally say, God, not my will, but thy will be done. Then the prayers start being answered. We are only praying our wishes, our prayers, until we surrender to God's kingdom. When we surrendered his kingdom, things begin to happen. Here's the thing. That means that he will become our passionate purpose in our life. When his will becomes our will, we can pray the will of God because he gives us the prayers to pray. He'll give us the desires of the heart because of the desires of our heart is his desires. Does that make sense? We pray the desires of heart because he's the king of our kingdom. All our worthy ambitions must become secondary to our ultimate purpose. The lesser pearls of our pleasures, plans, priorities, and popularity must surrender to claim the pearl of absolute rule of God in all our lives, relationships, and responsibilities. And these lesser pearls can be used for God's glory. I heard this story, and I'm about to close. <clears throat> I heard this story about a little girl. She saw her mom had these pearls, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, will you get me some pearls? Will you get me some pearls? Well, pearls are quite expensive, so her dad just got her these dime store plastic pearls, and he put it on his little daughter's neck, and she was so proud of those pearls, and she wanted to sleep with those pearls on. She would not take it off. She'd get in the shower, and she would have the pearls on. She loved those pearls. Those pearls meant everything to her. The dad would go up and have prayer time with his daughter. He would talk with her about things in life and they'd say their prayers and he'd walk out. He noticed that she's just kind of overly possessed with those pearls. And he said, uh, honey, I, I want you to give me those pearls. 
And she said, Daddy, Daddy, not my pearls. These are the pearls you gave me. And he goes, but honey, I want you to give them back to your, your daddy. No, Daddy, you could have my doll. You know how I love that doll, but you could have that doll. Or you could have this other thing, but not my pearls. And so the dad told her goodnight and walked out. He'd done that several times over a period of weeks. He comes in one night to pray with his daughter. <clears throat> Little tears are running down her cheeks and her lips are trembling. And she goes, Daddy, here's my pearls. You can have them. Then the dad had little tears running down his side of his cheeks. And he said, just a moment, daughter, I'll be right back. And the dad comes back in and he's got a beautiful set of pearls. He said, honey, I've been waiting to give these real pearls. Those pearls you had were fake. They're not even real. But I want to give you some real pearls. You have proven that you, you know the value You'll take care of them. I've just been waiting to give you these new pearls. But it kind of hurt my heart that you wanted to hold on to the plastic pearls. The fake pearls. I thought about that story. Even these pearls right here. I asked my wife. I said, you got some pearls I can use in illustration. And she said, you better not lose those pearls. I don't even know if a pearl's real or not. I guess I've been told if they're little, they're probably real. If they're big, they're probably fake, but I don't know. But she said, you better not lose these pearls. And she laid them there. And she said, I was kind of wondering why. She said, you know, my wife's mother died about six months ago. She said, her, my mom gave me these pearls. That makes them even more pearable, more priceless, doesn't it? These are the pearls her mom gave her. doesn't really matter if they're real or whether they be fake. These came from her mom. And I think about that. What are we holding on to in this life that's just going to fade away? It's worth nothing. It has no real value. We're holding on to it. We're gripping it. And we're denying God in our life. We're denying His access to our life. Holding on to cheap imitations of the real thing. How many cheap relationships are we holding on to that's standing in the will of God? How the will of God. How many cheap uh, things of this earth are we holding on to that's keeping us out of the will of God? What is it that means more to us than the King and His kingdom being in our life? You know, if you don't want the king and the kingdom in your life, then you're saying you don't trust that he wants you to have the best. I'm going to tell you something. If God ever asked for something, he's got something better to give you in its place. He's got something better to give you in its place. See, the great need of our time. I heard this little anonymous prayer. It said, live, dear God. Please live in me, that all I do will be done by thee. That all I think, do, or say will be thy thoughts and thy words this day. The great need of our time is for Christians to live out the implications of the king and his kingdom. Our prayer time is given over to his will. The needs of our society that breaks the heart of God should be breaking our heart. So many who claim Christ as Savior have never dared to trust Him as their Lord. Why is this? 
He says, he who is forgiven little loves little. Never understood that, but you hear the story of Hosea, his wife, went out a whoring into the world. And God said, I want you to go down. She's on the auction block. I want you to go buy Gomer. She's a slave now. I want you to go buy her back. I want you to take her back. I know she's been out here living in the world. She's been whoring after other people. I want you to go purchase her back and make her your wife once again. And Hosea was like, what? Folks, that's another little Old Testament story that represents our God. Don't matter where you've been, what you've been through, what affected your life, you've never out of the reach of God's love and His grace. He loves you. He'll love you back. He'll restore you. He'll fix what's injured in you. He'll make you a beautiful pearl if you'll give Him a chance. And you know what? He who is forgiven little loves little. The thing is, is for all of us to realize we've all were sinners and we've all been forgiven of a great sin. The sin of neglecting God. We're all should be great lovers. Love enables love. Then we can sing like the old song says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted because you were condemned. I'm alive and well and your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted and you were condemned. I am alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. I love this amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love. I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Accepting that we are everything to God frees us to say he's everything to me. And finally, he's Lord of everything. He found the pearl of the greatest price. My heart doeth sing for joy. And sing I must, for I am his, and he is mine. Can we bow our heads? <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every individual here today. Lord, there's some been injured by Satan's rule. They've been beat down. They have no self-respect. They're beat up by life. They have no... They, they don't feel like they're worthy to be loved by anybody or God. They feel bruised, injured. God, I pray that the love of God and the grace of God would surround them and let them know you're going to make something beautiful out of their hurts, out of their injuries. You're going to give them a testimony where there used to be shame and disgrace. You're going to give them a beautiful testimony of your love in your healing power. God, I pray that there be one here today that don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, just instill on them by the Holy Spirit that you, that you love them, that you first love them, and you want to make something great out of their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.